Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's a Monday morning. It's August the 1st, 2022. New week, new month. Old issues, though. We're going back to some of the oldest issues in the book. How to develop a country, how to go from poverty uh, to wealth, or at least how some countries get out of poverty, others don't. We did a show uh, in June of this year with Charlie Robertson, a development expert from London, about how to cure global poverty. He argues um, we need three things to get out of the poverty cycle, more education, more electricity, um, and uh, less fertility, fewer people. He has a new book out, The Time-Traveling Economist, Why Education, Electricity, and Fertility Are Key to Escaping Poverty. What Chai doesn't talk about, though, is the role of leadership in all this. We've done lots of shows on the role of leaders in the modern world, why there are good and bad leaders. We did one with the management consultant Keith Ferrazzi recently, very well-read person, a very well-read author, competing in the new new work of world um, the new new world of work. Ferrazzi is an expert on how to lead well. We've had many other leadership experts too, people like Susan McKendie Brady on why some leaders have empathy, others don't. Uh, she has a new book out, Arrive and Thrive. We've never really, though, put these two things together, the issue of leadership and the issue of how some countries get out of poverty and some don't. That's going to change today because my guest on the show, Oxford University's Stefan Durkon, and one of the world's leading authorities and thinkers on poverty and Development, Economic Development, has a new book out, Gambling on Development, Why Some Countries Win and Others Lose. Uh, and he focuses on leadership. I'm thrilled that uh, Stefan is joining us from Oxford today in the United Kingdom. Stefan, have I done justice to your thesis? Is leadership critical in terms of why some countries escape poverty and others don't? Um, up to a point. But... Uh... Essentially, I think, yes, with the proviso to actually saying that it's usually not just one person, it's not just one autocratic leader. I don't like these models where it all comes down to the one enlightened man somewhere at the head of it. But it is actually about a leading group, people that have power and influence. They could come from politics, from business, from the military, from civil society, even journalists, whatever, that they how, as a group, and I call them the elite, to actually come together and somehow implicitly and often very informally, but somehow begin to act very much committed to growth and development. And if you don't have that precondition, nothing will happen. There won't be good policies. The state won't function well. The economy will all be all about grabbing rents, not necessarily building up wealth and investing. And I think to that extent, I agree with you, there's an issue of leadership, but it's about a group of people that is influential in society that somehow gets it act together. Stefan, um, you seem to be a member of a curious tribe of 21st century academics, policymakers. You 
teach at Oxford, but you travel around the world advising government officials in countries like Ethiopia, Democratic Republic of Congo, many other countries about development. Um, do you make judgments? It seems to me from your thesis and looking at your book, you make judgments, and I don't mean that in a moral sense, but when you meet some of these powerful figures who are determining whether or not a country develops, light bulbs go off on your head and, and you think, this is the kind of guy, and it tends to be a male, although I suppose there are females too, this is the kind of guy who can get an Ethiopia, a Democratic Republic of Congo, out of poverty. Is that, firstly, how how your life is, this sort of traveling around the world, giving advice to developing countries? And is this the kind of thing that you think about when you meet these people? Well, look, my life is a little bit like this. I'm one of these lucky people. I, I work in the university, but I've been actually for the last 10 years, been actively involved, uh, often on behalf of the UK government in development advice and, and, and aid relationships and so on. Now, I travel around a lot and I always make a point not just to sit in the Sheraton or the Hilton and only meet the Prime Minister or the Minister of Finance. I try to talk to a lot of people and try to get a sense of you know, where is collectively all these group and influential positions where they try to go. And yes, I make judgments and I think the book has judgments in it. Um, but I don't think they are just based on this is a guy I can do business with or not. But it is actually a lot to do with trying to get quite in-depth knowledge of what's been happening both in history, in politics, in economics over long periods of time. So it's not as sometimes people do, and I will not name names, but I worry about them, who just go to these countries, only fly in to go and see a president or a prime minister, make up their minds, and have them just big advice around. You know, I spent a lot of time in these places. You know, there's not a single place I've written about that I've not spent a considerable time, often multiple visits, get to know different people and understand it. But yes, I make judgments. And I think that's another part of academics is that we are, we love to be what um, Harry Truman, actually the president, um, at some point shouted in despair at when he said, you know, uh, where economists kept on all the time saying on the one hand, on the other hand, so it's always keep it a bit the middle to be nuanced. And he shouted, give me a one-handed economist. I tried to be a one-handed or one-armed economist. And I tried to give advice and actually try to call it out as it is. And uh, yeah, there are countries where I despair about. I despair about the DRC, not necessarily today's leaders because I've not met them, but the ones a few years ago and the kind of elite that's governing this place. I despaired about several of the characters I also talk about in the book. Yes, and I think they can do better. That's what I find so frustrating. They're in positions of power and influence. It should not be so hard to get these countries to grow a bit more, to have a bit more inclusion, a bit more poverty reduction than what we see in quite a few of these countries. Having said that, there are countries that I begin to admire. They're not perfect, but they begin to get out of extreme poverty, unlikely places that people usually associate with hardship, like Bangladesh, a country that actually uh, was written of by Henry Kissinger in the early 1980s as a basket case, but actually has got it act together. And it's been growing considerably steadily uh, last 20 years, five, 6% growth, poverty reduced dramatically, health education improving. 
I like these places, even though they're still a bit of a mess, but they make progress. And there's several people there in, in powerful positions of influence, of power that actually try to make a difference. Stefan, I have uh, an idea for the title of your next book. Might be the uh, Charlie Robinson wrote The Time Traveling Economist. You might write The One-Handed Economist, although some people might take some rather vulgar, make some vulgar jokes about that title, which we won't get into because this is not a vulgar show. Um, Stefan, the, so, it's a lovely title of a book. It's an, more of an academic book, but it's a fun title, Gambling on Development. What's particularly intriguing is why some countries win and others lose. On your Twitter page, you have the image uh, of, a, of a slot machine where if you put money into a slot machine, you either win or you lose. There's, there's no third way. Is this zero-sum truth about the developing world? Is this metaphorical? Is it polemical or is it accurate? Is there always, are there always going to be some developing countries that win and some that lose? Can't they all win? Yeah, I know you make an excellent point. I wanted to explain why some lose, but I definitely don't want to to suggest that some lose, uh, that some win at the expense of some of the losers. I think, and actually, I find that quite remarkable. Why, why, why I talk about the gambling on development is that if you're in a position of power in a country, if you're part of that elite that runs this place and that does all the things for their own self-interest, it's quite a remarkable step to deviate from the status quo. The status quo is safe. You know what will happen. You will be in control. You have it all. Development and growth in economies changes. It changes uh, who is in the elite. There will be new players coming up. There will be new people becoming richer. There will be other people getting educated that may also want to stake in, in the whole enterprise. So actually, I'm more intrigued by the fact that there are actually sometimes elite players, countries that actually are trying to win. You know, you see Ghana, unlikely for a long time, that actually is beginning to do lots of sensible things. Going back a bit in time, Indonesia started it probably in the 1970s. And you say, look, this was a desperately poor country and they're doing it. And in the process, there were uh, some people in that elite that lost out, but still somehow they gambled on it and did it. But it's, no, it's absolutely not. In fact, I really worry about the fact that one of the biggest forces that allowed a lot of countries to win, uh, not at the expense of others, was international trade, globalization, process like that. Yes, it Can we use the word neoliberalism to describe that system, Stefan? We've done a number of shows on it, including with the historian at Cambridge, Gary Gerstel. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm talking actually more about you know, countries that despite all the troubles they've had in their own history, some taking the opportunities that exist and others that, that, that don't do that. You know, is this neoliberalism? I don't know. Um, sometimes, to be honest, even though I am in university and think I should know what it is, but the term gets used for so many other things. But there is something about if you are a desperately poor country, you know, you better take the opportunities that you can get, because if we have to wait in the kind of massive structural changes in the world that they may want to aspire, uh, and that maybe some of us will think that needs to happen, we can just wait forever. And meanwhile, um, there is a lot of hardship and there's, there's a lot of stuff still going on. What I find interesting is that 
Some countries that were desperately poor took advantage, take Bangladesh. And other countries, several African countries, also have of these opportunities, but didn't take advantage. Indeed, even in Africa, where, of course, colonialism puts a huge constraint on the opportunities that countries can have. But you do see a country like Ghana, despite a colonial history, trying to take advantage of the opportunities it has. Yes, shouting at other things that should be rectified in the world, but still taking the opportunities where other countries like, I don't know, Nigeria, especially Nigeria, doesn't at all seem to take these opportunities and is totally stagnant within a massive extreme poverty. Stephen, one of the head, uh, one of the headlines uh, on your book was in praise of African technocrats. Uh, and I'm not sure whether that's actually what you're arguing. Are you in favor of some sort of technocracy? The FT review said um, that it's all about politics. Uh, uh, it requires a commitment to power to shape politics. So when the sons and daughters of the wealthy people of Ghana or DRC or Ethiopia come to Oxford, should they be studying politics or should they be studying economics? I think they should study all of it. That's why we still offer in politics, philosophy and economics as a degree. They should know all of these things. I think that makes sense. But to pick up that point is on, on, on do we need technocrats? I'm not at all. And, and, and you know, the, 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 the article is freely available on the web and people could read it further. The ones I praise are the following types. That in this system where politics and elite politics especially and definitely often very powerful groups in business and military and the economy in these African, uh, sorry, and in, in, in politics in these African countries are dominating everything. You need players and technically or in academic work there sometimes are called technipoles technocrats who understand politics, who actually know how to actually begin to nudge this, the, the, what is going on in terms of policy making towards something that's a bit better for growth, a bit better for poverty reduction. And so that's the kind of praise I have, because we like to, 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 to see this in a very naive way, either technocrats are good or bad. But then we often think the technocrats are the outsiders, the technical experts that come and then give advice to them. No, no. In these countries, when you start looking at the successful countries, we have some amazing people that no one in the world seems to have heard about, who just very cleverly maneuver the elite players, the presidents, the prime minister, the finance ministers, into something that was a bit better. If Indonesia made a lot of progress, there's a lot of clearly well-defined people among the technocrats who play that role. In Africa, similarly, whether it's in Ghana or in other places, there are these kind of uh, people. And these are the ones that I really want to praise, the ones that understand enough of the politics and use their technical skills to give sensible advice. Because I can fly in, but I'm an outsider. I can't change these countries. The ones that I love talking to are these guys because they can change their countries. And by the way, the current generation in Africa, several of them are women, and I find them really interesting in South Africa. The chief economic advisor to the president is a woman, uh, Trudy Makaya. She is amazing. We have the same in, in Tanzania now, a woman as the advisor to the president, and they play that role, trying to get something better going and nudging the politicians and the people in power to some growth and development. These are the ones I praise. Yeah, that's a fascinating observation. I perhaps might be the subject uh, more seriously of another book of why 
some of the most innovative leaders in Africa are now women. I know you're a big admirer in some ways of Warren Buffett for his gambling instincts. Just watched a film last week, The Gambler, with James Kahn, who just died. Um, you're suggesting that all these leaders need to have a gambling instinct. They can't be addicted to gambling, but they've got to be willing to take risks. Conservatives, by definition, are, are going to lose, and th- the country's run by conservatives unwilling to, to take gambles, um, to understand risk will, by definition, fail. Is that fair? It, it, it is fair. And it's, it's again, it's, a, it's the kind of admiration I can have for those political leaders and those people in power and, and elite players in countries who somehow find a way of, of trying these things out. Now, for, and that's, that's a form of gambling, you know, it's not status quo is too easy. And for a very poor country, you're really stuck and your population will remain poor. But this actually also gives a role to outsiders. I'm a strong believer that if we as international community, whether it's through making the international rules of the game, including for globalization, or indeed through other kind of age relationships and, and whatever, we should be there to help to de-risk these gambles that these countries take. We should not try to tell them what to do. It never works. But those places and you can identify them that actually are starting to try to take somehow ownership of their development in sensible way not in crazy ways but you actually support them and give them give them opportunities you know you give them access to your markets you really promote that they will export to to our rich economies you give them uh, support you also do things like you know the one thing that makes politics in so many of these countries really toxic is the fact that in Western countries, there's still a lot of opportunities to, to get either assistance or indeed park illicit money. You know, tax havens that we somehow or another don't really want to fight entirely, that actually causes a lot of the politics in these places to be really toxic. So it's these kind of things that we can do. These are ways we can help to de-risk their gambles. Yes, I want them to the gamble, but I also I, I want them to do the gambles, but I also want to support them so that the risks are not too high, that we're there to support those places that try to get out of poverty. Uh, Stefan, I was in Oxford two or three years ago interviewing Sir Paul Collier, one of the leading figures in your field at your university, a developmental economist, had interesting new book out, The Future of Capitalism. And he was on a show called how to fix democracy. And we talked about the role of democracy in development. You haven't used the D word yet, um, Stefan. How important or irrelevant is democracy in terms of gambling on development? A lot of Americans in particular might think, well, just let the people vote for their own leaders. Why are you talking about appointing or respecting gamblers when in fact leadership should come from the will of the people? Right. Look, I'm, I'm fundamentally, of course, a, 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 a total believer in democracy. And there's quite a lot of evidence. And when countries want to get further ahead, when they want to emerge as really, you know, richer economies, you know, democracy seems to play a really good role in providing, you know, the, the checks and balances, but also the freedoms and the scope for innovation and so on. So, you know, it's there. But we're talking here about the early stages of takeoff. And I have to be sufficiently evidence-based. And when I look around, I don't find in the research and in the data enough evidence to say, 
it must be a democracy or it must be an autocracy when in these very early stages of development uh, uh, um, in terms of what will be successful. There is actually one of these unfortunate things. You know, we have democracies in Africa who are totally stagnant and are not delivering for their people. Um, that's, that's, for example, Ghana. On the other hand, in uh, sorry, I, I misspoke here. It's actually Malawi because Ghana is actually an example where the democracy is really functioning rather well. And it's one of the key reasons why the progress can be made. The way I look at it, it's not simply democracy versus autocracy. There has to be some form of accountability in the system early on. There has to be either an internal accountability that actually there is somehow a check that, that, that indeed resources are used to, to build up economies. They're not just ending up in Switzerland or another tax haven. They are, um, there's actually a learning about policy so that there's no crazy things are going on in economic policy making. Um, and this accountability can come from external forces. Democracy can work for that. Or it can come also from internal forces as well. But we have seen, unfortunately, that in places where, you know, they vote for their leaders, and I'm thinking of Malawi, where the economies and, and uh, are effectively stagnant and, and uh, where poverty remains really high. It's unfortunately not really a necessary nor sufficient condition to actually get that early takeoff. But I can assure you, once you get further, and we've seen that, say, in Indonesia, that's become a proper middle-income country. We've seen that in East Asia, that then actually these forces of democracy and democratization matter. But we can't wait or simply think that we can create that perfect democracy now we put all the resources in it and then everything else can happen we can actually make progress within these imperfections and that's a bit what the book also wants to argue you know don't strive for perfections don't think it's all there as long as i fix the the political system it will be fine as long as i keep on just fighting corruption it will be fine you know we need to have fundamentally leading figures, those with power and influence, which you can't easily kick out straight away, to actually also wanting to progress. And then we can get these processes of also going further. And, you know, I think in the end, to be rich, democracy will 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 come, come, come on top of it. But in these early states, I don't think there's enough evidence. Their autocratic states have done quite well. Their democratic states have gone, done, gone quite well. But of both types, there's also states that have not made any progress. So I'm definitely not craving for the big leader, the big chief, the unelected politician that to run it, because some of the worst examples are, of course, also autocracies, including some that I discuss in my book. You mentioned, oh, I'm quoting you, East Asia, when people think of East Asia, of course, above all else, we think of China. Is the China model one which you admire? Did Xi take a great gamble? Is he an example of a man who gambled on development? After all, China is the model for many developing countries, for better or worse. And China is increasingly investing in the developing world. There's a, a new kind of economic cold war between China and the United States around the world, particularly in Africa. What, what's your position on, Africa, uh, on China in terms of the thesis in your book? Yes. So that, that's an excellent question. And it's definitely not that I bring out Xi as the, as the, the big gambler and so on. You know, there was, an, there was a gamble that took place in China, and that was in 1979. That was Deng Xiaoping that actually took a gamble together with others in the party reformers that uh, managed to sideline others that wanted to keep ideology on top 
uh, of the rest of it. And they took a gamble. They took indeed a gamble on development. And I have to acknowledge it, that they made from extreme poverty and lots of chaos in the 1960s and 70s, they actually managed to start um, takeoff in growth and indeed getting a lot of people out of, of poverty. However, you know, what do, do other countries have to learn about it? China is so exceptional that one of the key arguments in my book is, is to actually try to say there is only one thing that we can learn. And that's not that the state should run the economy or that you have to have a one party state or that you have to have special economic zones or that you have spent a lot on infrastructure and that will get you out of it. No, that's the flatback version of development that they try to export. That is actually not what we can learn. There is only one thing we can learn, that in the end, they got a shared commitment to growth and development amongst their elite. Their elite was the party. They managed to get a real commitment. We must start growing. Otherwise, yes, they did it out of self-interest. Otherwise, we'll lose power because we'll lose all legitimacy to our population. For them, that was a gamble of development, trying to stay in power. But I can't deny that they were quite successful in the growth and in the development. But there is, but but why is then not so little to learn from, from, from China? And it's probably for the very simple reason. China is unique because I can't think of a state in the world that had 2,000 years of a centralized state of that scale with centralized taxation, with a meritocratic bureaucracy. Now, if you have that, then I can see that probably you can be quite successful with state-led development. I can't think of a single of an ex of extreme poor country that is left in the world that has a state like that. So in my advices is not to try to go for state-led development, but for those countries and those elites that want to gamble on development, just be really aware of the weakness of your own state and trying to keep that in mind. You know, you may have built up your state simply to give jobs to your friends and your family. You may use the state to actually exploit and steal from your population. Don't think that state will be able to lead development. That's, for example, really interesting in Bangladesh. Bangladesh did not go for state-run development. If anything, it was quite restrained. It was quite careful. It did some good things, but often they were avoiding getting too involved and letting other players happen. To give an example that many will, 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 will barely know is that the largest NGO in the world is a Bangladeshi NGO. It's called BRAC. It was set up in the 1970s when they had the end of their conflict, uh, the independence uh, war with Pakistan, and then indeed the famine that they had. It's the largest NGO in the world because, because the state was so weak. It allowed that NGO to build up essentially education, health services, social protection services for the poor people. Now, that's a self-aware state that allows an NGO to become so big that it's almost a state within the state. But it's allowed to do it. And that's that self-awareness that we can have. That's nothing you could have learned from China or indeed from state-led development. Let's talk. Briefly, uh, Stefan, there's a couple of other points I want to get in before the end. It's a very interesting conversation. You contrast Ethiopia and the Democratic Republic of Congo in the book, and a lot of the reviews have focused on this contrast. What's the difference between Ethiopia and Congo? Uh, wh why are they seem to be the, the bookends of your argument? Well, um, if we take, first of all, Congo, the DRC, the TRC um, 
excels over time, over the last decades. Uh, of course, it had a terrible colonial period and it had a per terrible period of decolonization as well. But these days, and in the last decades, the leadership seems to have only been interested in stealing from the people, or in any case, development doesn't quite feature. It's essentially a game amongst the elite of who will control the massive mining interests, of course, that exist there. And yeah, it used to be copper and rubber, and now it's cobalt and, and, and things like that. But there's massive, massive reserves that, that they have. And it's all about who controls the rents from getting these contracts to mining companies and so on and so on, not quite via uh, very public procurement to the benefit of the state. So somehow we have a state that is really governed by a small elite, not at all for development or for growth, but just for redistributing the wealth from the mines. Ethiopia, and I'm definitely I'm talking then of a period somewhere between 2000 and 2020, Ethiopia was desperately poor, had massive food security problems, has always known war, and unfortunately, uh, the political uh, setup now has imploded again and there is conflict going on. But for this 20-year period, the leadership, um, yes, it wasn't a very broad leadership, it was quite autocratic. But one of the things what, what I definitely found very striking is that leadership, and however we want to judge them for their democratic credentials or not, they wanted development as a way of gaining legitimacy from their population. So they really were very much focused and all the means of the state and from any resources they had invested in trying to get development in agriculture, in poverty reduction, but also infrastructure and getting growth going in that economy. And that's a deep, deep commitment by the kind of the, the group that was in control and including in the, the, the public administration, the civil servants. And I think that total contrast with Congo, I definitely had to bring out. And fundamental difference, what are they committed to, to line their own pockets or to actually to grow and develop the country? Stefan, uh, students of Africa, of course, will note that Congo was colonized by Belgium. E Ethiopia wasn't, although it has a complicated relationship with the European powers. Uh, you are, of course, from Belgium originally. You're a described as an Anglo-Belgian uh, academic. The Belgium Empire was the most brutal in Africa, I think. All, all the European empires were brutal, but the Belgium Empire excelled in its brutality. Uh, Conrad, of course, wrote about it in Heart of Darkness that got made into the great movie Apocalypse Now. Are you, have you been drawn into this field because of a feeling of guilt, the fact that you're from Belgium and that Belgium is guilty of such horrendous crimes in Africa in the 19th century? Um, well, actually, it's a bit of the opposite. I escaped from Belgium while working on Africa because I never wanted to work on Congo. <laughs> this is the first time ever I've written about Congo um, in, a, in a comparative sense. You know, I was taught by people um, who had been in colonial administration working in the 1960s. And yes, we focus on the late 19th century period, as you're just referring to the brutality. You know, it wasn't the, even the, the country was essentially looted by the Belgians. We did uh, a show with William Dalrymple about the, the British looting of India, but the Belgium. No, no, it's, it's, and, and I'm not trying to deny this. I was actually more trying to make the point is that the, the complexity of colonial times later on, what Belgium then failed to do is to actually build up a serious state and so on. But it was just because I had no respect 
for the people that, to be honest, taught me first economics and development uh, at a university in Belgium, but I ended up initially only working on Anglophone countries, and only more recently I've been willing to work again on countries that are, that are not Anglophone, just simply not to do it. But it is it is an interesting, um, it is a, it, of course, it's a, a deeply troublesome observation. And I do get, and, and you know, the other day I got in a big discussion also with a Congolese uh, uh, woman, and um, it is important to, to listen also to economic historians that don't want to deny, and the last thing I want to deny is that colonial history of Belgium or of Portugal, but to be honest, of, of Britain and of France, was deeply brutal and definitely set a lot of these countries into a really difficult position. And uh, let me quote Leonard Wanchacon, the, the, the economic historian from Princeton who comes from Benin or from Benin. And uh, he kind of says, you know, look, yes, 50% of the state of where African countries are now is probably due to history and he means colonialism, but 50% is also agency. You know, the current leadership in a place like Congo, they can actually do things. The wealth of Congo is enormous. The institutional basis of the country is very weak. But meanwhile, those people that are in charge of that country, they could do so much better. There are countries with a colonial history, with a lot of mining wealth like Botswana, have managed to get a very different course in history. Uh, Indonesia, also with a very brutal colonial history uh, with the Dutch, managed initially not really to overcome this, but now it is totally moving away. It also has quite a lot of oil and natural resources. We have other countries like that to doing it. So there is a moment where you say you can recognize that history puts in a huge, brutal constraint on your opportunity set, but you still can try to do better. And um, as, as a country, and uh, yeah, is this is is me working on on on, on development guilt because I'm a Belgian? Um, I think I don't think that's uh, uh, as easy. I I never I I I never really uh, reflected on it. I'm not part of of, of that. Um, I want to be forward looking. I'll do all I can to support those who try to get countries like the DRC and others to be better places. Stefan, the way you present Africa in particular, there are elites that are gambling on development. Some countries win like Ethiopia or might win like Ethiopia. Others seem to be losing like, um, like the DRC. But in our shows on Africa, there's a, another reality. I'm not saying you're denying this, but a different kind of reality. I did a show with the Irish journalist Sally Hayden on the 21st century slave trade on the shores of the Mediterranean, a particularly horrific show, did one with a man called Usman Umar, um, who escaped, went to Barcelona, walked, almost died. He has a book, North to Paradise, a memoir. It's a book about development in Africa. But the Africa that Usman and Hayden present, for better or worse, is profoundly troubling. I mean, on a level that... And again, I don't need to tell you this, but what is the reality? Uh, and, and I'm not suggesting that you're peddling one reality or another in gambling on development. What, what is the reality of Africa? You get these apocalyptic takes, which seem 
Conradian. And on the other hand, you read books like yours, which suggest that there is a way out. What? How would you summarize? And, and again, I, I know that talking about Africa as a continent in general is probably patronizing as well. But when when you take into account the immigration or the emigration crisis, the, the absence of jobs, the fact that people are willing to dramatically risk their lives to escape to Europe, how would you summarize the current condition in Africa? So it's, it's a situation of huge heterogeneity of opportunities in, in the continent. There are places where you rarely will hear about people that are trying to escape and uh, trying to um, you know, walk, walk across the continent to get out of it. Now, to, to be honest, you know, um, let me actually maybe first make the point. I wish, you know, I wish and, and I would be <laughs> quite happily in favor of this to, to be so much more relaxed of people who want to make a future in another country to give them the opportunities. But there are plenty of countries where the reality is not one of massive, um, easy life and opportunity, but there is a reality of more opportunity than their parents would have had, and they can actually begin to do it. There's other places, and I mentioned them, you know, if I was someone, a young person in Eastern Congo, I do think that I may well be one of these people that walked across the Sahara and tried to get out. Because there, in with everything coming together, with a Kinshasa politics that really doesn't really care about people, but also conflict and hardships, and then um, you actually say, well, what is it that I can, what opportunity can I take? So there's a huge heterogeneity in opportunity now. Um, I don't think we helped any we helping anyone to simply portray it. It is it is Conradian. It is like the apocalypse is happening there. It is it is not there. In fact, if you look at the statistics, there are now um, you know as a share of the population fewer people in extreme poverty than there were than there were 20, 30 years ago. Um, and definitely when you look at a number of children that die from malnutrition or from hunger, it is much lower in absolute numbers than it was 20, 30 years ago. So overall, there is actually quite a lot of progress happening there. But it is heterogeneous. There is heterogeneity. Some countries, the opportunities are improving. And these are countries I named, like Ghana, I could call Cote d'Ivoire, Senegal, uh, probably Eastern African countries as well, like Kenya or Tanzania. It's improving slowly and it could be better there's other places that are very stagnant you know big parts of nigeria drc um places like mali and so on where you really say things are stuck and these are the ones that we see then also emerging in uh on the shores in the mediterranean we see them leaving eritrea we see them leaving now with the conflict ethiopia because it is really tough now and that's the kind of thing but we should be willing to say, and in fact, African countries, there are increasingly examples of them that actually show how it can improve. And this is why I'm saying there is a way, because they're actually showing us that they can find their own way of doing it. We don't have to have massive global revolution or thinking it has to come somehow from us. They're doing it themselves. I just want us to support them and actually call them out when they're successful, call them out when they can't be bothered. There is indeed a way, uh, uh, as Stefan argues in this 
conversation and in his new book, Gambling on Development, Why Some Countries Win and Others Lose. And these are not uh, the, these are not puppets of the West. Uh, it's an important point. Congratulations, uh, Stefan, on the new book. And I, and I appreciate such a far-ranging conversation. Uh, what else are you reading in addition to Gambling on Development? What else should people be reading? Maybe a bit of Joseph um, Conrad? Oh look! I look! I I love that book. I mean, it is it is it is um, one of it is actually my one favorite book uh, that, that exists. Part of uh, that, yeah. Uh, but but anything more recent? Um, I've no, I've been reading an author. Okay, I'll admit to it. He's a Belgian author. His name is David van Rijbroek, and he wrote a book. Yeah, I know him. As well, you know, and it's the book on Congo. That's the one that I would say. So people that want to get a bit of a deeper understanding, both of the brutality of colonial times, the complexity of the whole period afterwards, it's an excellent book. He wrote a book that I don't think is out in English yet, now on Indonesia. It's called Revolusi. And it's brilliant just to telling the similar type of story as he did on Congo, on the Indonesian colonial times and the War of Independence and what came after. And it's just such a brilliant author that I would really recommend. David yeah, and the, the interesting thing about Van Raybrook is, in addition to his work on e Indonesia and uh, and Africa, he, he's also written some interesting stuff on um, on uh, uh, citizen assemblies in, in Belgium. He's a leading um, he's a leading pioneer, and actually, I had him on my other How to Fix Democracy. But I, I, do you know do you know him? Um, I don't know him personally. Yeah, I, I do uh, know. Him. I'll have to, it reminds me. I'll have to get him on uh, on the show. Yes, and absolutely, and let him talk about Congo and Indonesia. It will be fascinating to get someone who's really dug into it. And, you know, one of the things is, what I find interesting there is that, you know, we need to rewrite these colonial histories. This is the time to actually be willing to actually really, I'm not saying that anything was good, in fact, to the contrary. Societies like the Belgian societies, Dutch society, the British society, they haven't really come to terms with it. And so David's book was just, amazing in that, that actually provided a very clear, articulate um, uh, argument. And, you know, and it brought all the, the brutality and the and awfulness of the whole times, but in a careful way that it allows you to begin to understand, not in a simplistic way. Anyway, another book I, I, I read, so I'm all always interested in things to do with conflict. So Christopher Blattman, Chris Blattman, Why We Fight, uh, mm. it just came out. I think it's excellent. Um, he's an academic I've worked with, but this is a much more accessible book. And uh, yeah, we had him. Uh, we had Blackman on the show too. Absolutely. 